Man, what an awesome joy it is to be here. I know Brady and I have been anticipating this for well over a year, and to get to experience worship with you and just to be in this moment and to be with you today has just been a joy uh, to me. And, and as I was sitting here worshiping, you know, it was like God was just bringing to my mind some cool things, uh, some things about what he's doing in the world right now that, that I want to encourage you with, and it's very much in alignment with what Brady's word was from the Holy Spirit, and that is not to have fear. We sit at a moment in the world today where the world feels like it's falling apart at the seams, doesn't it? You kind of see it with the, the news, right? You just, the Ebola epidemic that's breaking out, right? That's, that's, that's serious, it's scary. You see what's happening in the Middle East with ISIS. We're seeing beheadings take place on our televisions, something that seems medieval. In our own country, we have a mental health epidemic. Over 40% of middle-aged women and many men are on antidepressants to fight back against anxiety, panic, depression. You've got unknown, untold numbers of children who are being aborted. People are confused about where to find meaningful relationships anymore. They're, they're confused about their sexuality, confused about where to go for real intimacy. And the church in the middle of that has felt a little bit of a limp, right? As we kind of walk into the middle of this moment and we're just a little unsure that we really have anything we can say to this situation and we lack confidence. We're not sure. We're not sure how to say it anymore. We've gotten shut down so many times that we're just losing a little bit of our zeal and our boldness and our confidence. And you know that's exactly what the enemy wants right now. At a moment in the world when he wants us as believers, when the church needs to be rising up, when the church needs to be clear and prophetic and bold and give witness to what's true about the world, to the hope that is within us, at that very moment, doesn't it make sense that he would try to cripple us? That we in, inside of ourselves would start to look too insular, to consider whether we're good enough to do this, whether we really have anything to offer, and yet God's saying, just be faithful. Step forward. Stop being afraid. Let's have courage. Let's walk into this. You see, I really believe, and this has, been, uh, this has really been the mark of my year. January 21st, God sent a prophet to New York City to meet with me. And that prophet was an old friend of mine who I went to college with, who every day of college, him and his brother would get up and they'd read the Bible together every morning at five in the morning. I didn't know any other college student who really took it that seriously. Every morning for four years throughout college, they did that, and since then have, have remained faithful, have remained in the Word. And, and one of these gentlemen has remained a great friend of mine. Well. Back in December, we had a conversation, and, and he just called me, and he said, the Holy Spirit put you on my heart today. And he said, I needed to come spend a day with you. And this is a guy who's incredibly busy, incredibly successful entrepreneur. He's never come to see me in New York. And he said, the Holy Spirit told me to come see you today, to come, to come plan to spend a day with you. So we looked forward on the calendar, found a day, and sure enough, he flies in January 21st in the morning, and I don't quite know what to expect, but I literally, in my time with God, knew God was sending somebody to give a message to me in the way that, that prophets, I would imagine, work. And this man wouldn't call himself a prophet. He's just a good friend who was listening to the heart of God. Well, he comes to New York that day. We spend the day together getting into the Word, diving into what's happening in the world and into the Word. 
And of course, like happens quite often in Manhattan, the snow starts to fall and all of a sudden his night flight back out gets canceled and so now he's spending the night with me and my family. And now we're spending an evening together with my wife and we're, we're having these deep discussions and praying together and starting to imagine what God's doing in the world and God uses that day to mark my wife and I's life because the key message that he had for us is God wants you to go deep. God wants you to go deep. Get on your knees, get in the word. Don't take this stuff lightly. I'm trying to do something new in the world and it's gonna require people who take me seriously and are willing to do this. And so whatever you have to do, clear your calendar in the mornings, schedule your time, but go deep. And it left a mark on my wife and I, and something changed in our family, something changed in the way that we even relate to one another, but something serious started to happen as we've started to seek God this year. And I can just tell you from that time with him, the message he has for us is Jesus wants his church back. Jesus wants his church back. He wants us to have that confidence again that the message that's been true for 2,000 years, the good news really is good news for our world. And that we're the ones who actually get in the way of the good news going forward because we're so caught up in what people will think about us, how we're saying it, what we're doing. And the reality is he just wants us to walk forward in faith and to let the testimony of our lives start to bring power into this world. And so tonight I'm here to encourage you it was so cool to, to, to watch Stu up here, Stu, leading worship. I mean, I go back to 2002, and you wouldn't know this, but God was speaking to me in 2002 about the vision that he had for my life, and it was gonna require me to leave and abandon sort of this path I was on that everybody was telling me was successful. Everybody was telling me, that's a great, why would you ever leave that? And yet, deep in my soul, I knew that God was telling me to do something new. And God used you and used Delirious and used your music to be a huge part of that journey for me. I remember the song History Makers became one of those just completely play it over and over again and dream about what God's trying to do in the world and have a hopeful vision. And at a time when people weren't talking that way, you guys were being prophetic. And you were trying to call the church back even then. And not many people were listening because things looked pretty good back in the late 90s and early 2000s, right? Things were looking good, the church was growing, things were big, mega churches were starting to come on the scene. We were getting really excited because Christians started to have influence. In fact, in America, we had elected our first pretty much evangelical president. The Speaker of the House was a Christian. Many of our congressmen were Christians. We kind of looked around and went, man, this project has worked out. We've now elected Christians into office. We've got cool things happening. We've got more money than we could ever dream of. And just a decade later, look at where we sit. We're in a world that feels like it's falling apart of the seams and God's trying to do something new. And he does something new, not when things are looking up, it's usually when things are looking down. You know, the story of the Bible is that when things are looking down, God's looking for a few faithful people that he can rely on and call on who will be faithful, who can step forward to do what he's calling them to do. We don't have to look much further than the Old Testament and the story of Gideon, right? where he's about to go to battle, God's told him what to do, and he he's, he's, gets his 30,000 troops, and he's ready to go, and God says, no, that's too many. I don't need 30,000. Let's reduce that number a little bit. So he reduces the number, he still has several thousand, he's ready to go to battle, and he says, no, too many people, I don't need that many people. It's not about your power, it's about my power. He says, take them down to the water's edge and have them drink, and those who lap it up like a dog, 
Send them home. Those who use their hands to drink while they're still staying alert, keep them. And what does it reduce the number to? 300. He reduces the, the size of this army down to 300 people. And then what do they do? They go in and God gives them complete and utter victory. Now, they could have never strategized that. They could have never imagined it. For them, it looked like certain death. But they had faith that God knew what he was doing. And, and we see that story happen over and over and over again. So tonight's about encouraging you. You know, I'm, I'm encouraged to be in a place where, where the name that sits above us is a name called New Life. Okay, we take it for granted, right? We're going to the New Life Conference. We're at New Life Church. We're on New Life Road, right? We just say it. It's like... <laughs> No big deal. Now let's talk about that for a second. Jesus is trying to do a new thing in the church. He's always trying to do it. He's always renewing. He's a God of renewal and restoration. So he's renewing things even as we speak here tonight. And he wants to give new life, not just to those who are outside the church, who'd never have believed in him and who we all sort of think about how are we gonna get them to, to come into new life. No, he's trying to give new life to you tonight. He's trying to give new life to me. He's saying, get out of the way and let this new life start to come to live within you and live amongst you and live amongst your neighborhoods and your communities and your friends. Let this new life be created because I'm a God of renewal and I'm renewing the church and I'm putting the church back together. And for some of you who aren't aware, the big things are happening within the church today. We have denominations splitting over um, disagreements about theology, about sexuality. We have evangelical churches struggling to decide how they're going to go on some of this. There's big things happening in the church. And I think it's all part of what he's trying to do to start to figure out who's with me. Who is my church? Who are the ones who are going to remain faithful in the midst of what might seem like dire consequences? Our brothers and sisters in Iraq, they go through this every day, don't they? You're just now hearing their stories, but they've had to rely on this faithfulness. They've been told to convert or die, and what have many of them done? They've died. They've become martyrs for our faith. Do you and I have to deal with that on a daily basis? No. But you know what? It would do us well to think about that every single day. That just about 10 hours away from us, that's happening. That's real. And so today is about encouraging you with that. And I'm going to get some of my notes out here. And if you'll just bear with me, I think God has some pretty cool things he wants to equip us with about how we're thinking about the world right now. You see the men of Issachar, right? We all know this verse, but they understood the times and knew what to do, right? Many times we have fear because we actually don't know what to do. And we don't understand the times. And in fact, we read the times as something fearful. We, we watch the news and we think, man, God must be wringing his hands in heaven and, and unaware of what's happening in the world. And yet he's fully aware and he wants us to understand what's going on and then he wants us to walk forward and to lead. And so tonight, many of you are gonna be called to lead. You're gonna be called to step forward, to start to have more courage. And it's not going to be because you've become something new. No, it's going to be because you're starting to realize and recognize that the power of the Holy Spirit in you wants to change things. He wants to rearrange things. He wants to transform people's lives. He wants to transform these situations that we look around and are blown away by. And he wants to come into those things and make something new. But he needs a church, a church that believes that that's possible. Not a church that's doubting, not a church that's wondering whether God really can show up this time. 
He wants a church that knows of his faithfulness, that remembers what he's done and knows that he can renew those things in our day. So part of what we want to do today and tonight is to talk a little bit about our times. I want to talk about the cultural landscape, kind of the moment that we're in real quickly. So some of this is going to feel a bit educational, and I want it to because I'm trying to equip you. That's one of the callings God's given me is to try to equip the church and the leaders of the church to understand these times and then to walk forward. So we're going to get equipped. But we're also going to dream a little bit about what's the new thing that God's trying to do. So first, let's understand our times. Right now, there's these three big forces colliding. And you're sitting in a moment right now that really hasn't happened in recent history. Three big ideas are kind of driving the way American culture and American life's going, and that's why you're feeling a bit on the squeeze right now. You see, the first is we're in a pluralistic culture. That's the way the founders designed America, that all faiths could be a part of this great country. But for 200 years, the Christian idea dominated that public square. Well, guess what? That's over. And now other ideas are dominating that square. In fact, Christian ideas are relegated to the side. They think, you've had your chance. Now we're going to have our chance. And so you're feeling that, right? It's a visceral reality. To understand what, what it means to be pluralistic, you've got to look at some of the new attitudes that are developing as well in this new culture. If you can go to that slide called New Attitudes. I want to share with you five things that are happening right now that, that will give you a little bit of a description here. The first is, is that the next generation, and many of us, because this is kind of the air we breathe, breathe, believe that there's no moral authority higher than myself. Whatever I think is right and true, that's what is. Secondly, personal happiness reigns. Life's about my pleasure, about achieving a result. That's my comfort and pleasure. Third, the good of the individual, me, trumps the community. And so we believe that whatever it is that we need, we don't have to take the community into consideration. Just do what's best for us. Fourth, God exists for our benefit if he exists at all. It's a pervasive attitude. When we pray to God, it's because we want him to help us out. It has nothing to do with his will for our life. It has to do actually with us getting what we want. And finally, meaning can only be found in this world. You see, these are some of the new attitudes that exist today that as you talk to individuals, as people are part of your church and you're trying to get through to them, what you're trying to break through is these pervasive attitudes that are part of our times. It's just the way people think. And many of us in this room are influenced by these ideas. Let's not be deceived. Many of us have been shaped deeply by these ideas and to be countercultural is to actually confront that in our own lives. The second part of those circles I was describing is, is we're in a post-Christian moment. Simply put, we've gone from being a very Christian culture where the church sat at the center of all the conversations to now the church is on the periphery. And so the church really isn't engaged in many of the, uh, the big conversations about life, about our times, about our communities and our cities. And so we find ourselves in this post-Christian moment. You see, before we were post-Christian and we were just Christian, I want to describe to you, and many of you will relate to this, especially if you grew up in the 70s, 80s, you'll understand some of these old attitudes, but I want to call them out because these no longer exist, and I just want to make sure we're all on the same page as we try to understand our times. If you look at these old attitudes, the first is most people in America believed in God. We could all kind of start with that. Most people just believed there was a God. The second thing is most people respected the Bible. 
You look around most homes, there was a family Bible at least. Maybe it was this big, maybe it never got opened. But that book sat on some shelf gathering dust and people had a respect for it generally. Third, people believed in a heaven. They thought there was an afterlife. They thought, there's somewhere I'm going when I die. I hope I go to heaven. It was just kind of an understood. People were moral and wanted to be good. You could almost assume that anybody you met, neighbors, new colleagues, there was just this assumption that they were moral people. They knew what was right and wrong, what was good, what was evil. And that in general, they wanted their life to be more like that. They wanted to be better people. And then finally, the Christian faith came along in the midst of that kind of a context, and it showed them how to become more like the person they already wanted to be. See, does that make sense? People wanted to go to heaven. People wanted to be better. And so when you showed up at their door and you knocked and you said, hey, can I tell you about our church and what we're doing? All of a sudden, maybe some lights came on and they said, yeah, I'd love to be a part of that. That's already where I'm at. Those assumptions are completely gone. And so we have to start there and understand that the new reality are these new attitudes. And add to that, there's a disrespect for religion. Just 15 years ago, you would have had 89% of people in America saying they had a general respect for religion. Today, nearly 50% of people would say religion and people of faith are part of the problem in our world. We've experienced a drastic shift in how people think about faith and religion and life. And finally, the third circle is postmodern. You've heard this word a lot, and it gets used probably too much, but the idea of being postmodern is people are just skeptical towards authority. But one of the ways it's showing up are in these new rules of social engagement. I talked about these this afternoon, so if it's redundant for some of you who are here, I'm sorry, but I think it's important that we understand what are the new rules we're all dealing with. And it'll give you some enlightenment about why some people are rejecting your message. Why some people actually think you're the evil one in your community because of what you preach and what you teach. You see, the first rule of social engagement is that one may not criticize someone's life choices or behavior. The worst thing you can do is tell somebody that the decision they've made, the life that they're living, is wrong. You see, when you do that, you actually become evil. They liken you to Satan, truly. People who don't even believe in God will say, you're satanic because you just judged somebody or you told somebody their life choices or behavior were wrong. Well, the message to Christian leaders in the church is part of our calling is to disciple people, which automatically means usually calling them away to the natural ways that they want to live, natural behaviors, to supernatural ones, to ones that fall into alignment with the way God's designed us to be. The second rule is that one may not behave in a manner that coerces or causes harm to others. And so that's kind of simple. We all kind of agree with that, but here's where it becomes a challenge is that some might say in the near future some of the words that you're preaching, some of the things that you're teaching is hurting somebody's feelings. It's making them feel isolated from the community. It's offensive to them. It's hate speech. And so anything that you're saying that could possibly cause harm to others is going against one of the big social taboos of the day. And that creates a bit of this tension that you're feeling. Third, one may not engage in a sexual relationship without, with someone without his or her consent. And so essentially all sex is good, as long as the partner agrees. Doesn't matter what age the partner is, it just matters that they agree. Enter into that world the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? 
And we're all kind of going, how is this going to work? You see, these are just the new dynamics. Every generation, these kinds of things change, but we're going through quite a significant transition. And so in the midst of that, what does it mean for us to be the church? Is Jesus calling out to us saying, I want you to just keep up with culture. I want you to be relevant. I want you to be well-liked. I want you to create spaces where everybody feels comfortable and you never offend them and you never tell them anything that would offend their life choices or behavior? No. What Christ is calling us to is what he's always called the church to, which is something Stanley Hauerwas calls a colony of life in a culture of death. We are called to be the colony of life in a culture of death, in a culture that's falling apart at the seams where the fabric has been ripped. We are called to be a colony of life that lives in such a way that we bear witness to the good news and we give people hope of a better way to live, not just because we're Christians, but because we understand what it means to be human, because we know who created us and whose image we've been made in. And when we know who, we've, who, who made us and when we know the image of God is within us, we start to walk forward into this world and all of a sudden, the world falling apart becomes a playground for us to be a part of his renewal and the work of transformation that he's trying to do and has always been trying to do and doing throughout time that gives witness to the gospel. You see, being countercultural is what we've been called to do, but it doesn't mean we're antagonistic to the world. I want to Think together about this because some of you would hear the word countercultural and it immediately would conjure up images of being anti-culture. That you're condemning, critiquing everything that's wrong with culture. That's what a counterculture is. Sure, there are some countercultures who are like that, but that's not what we're called to be. We're called to be a counterculture for the common good of everyone. And so we're offering a better way in the way that we live our lives, the way we treat one another, the way we are generous with our things, the way we give power away the way we stay committed in our relationships to our husbands and wives. And so in that way, we start to live in a way that's just a little bit counter to the culture. I think of 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. You hear that term new, new life, new? You see, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you're wondering what your calling is in this world, you're thinking about jobs and careers, I want you to take that to a whole nother level. Your calling is to be a minister of reconciliation, to reconcile things, to put things together that have been broken apart. No matter where you're showing up, this applies to your neighborhood, it applies to, applies to relationships in your family, it applies to marriage relationships, this applies to your career, to the workplace, to the school that your children are a part of. You see, the Christian walks forward into a broken world and has a vision for how things ought to be and how they one day will be in the new creation. And we start to create that reality now. And by creating that reality, the Holy Spirit is able to give a tangible evidence of the world to come, of what people long for deep in their souls because they are made in the image of God. And we give witness to something that words can hardly describe that starts to spark their curiosity it starts to become this attractive force for good. It starts to make them curious. They start to ask questions. And then we are equipped to answer those questions, to show them the better way. 
Verse 19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. So that was the big picture. God's reconciling the whole world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And Paul just restates it for emphasis. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. It's very clear. This is part of our mission in the world, is to be reconcilers, restorers, those who are renewing. And you can't do that unless you have a vision of how things ought to be. If you're trying to restore an old car, right? Some of you maybe have done this, or maybe you have a parent or a friend, somebody who's just really into old cars. I know my uncle is into very old cars. And to restore an old 1964 Chevrolet means he has to go back and understand all the original parts. What was the original design? What was the original engine used? Did they have eight track players in 1964? Because if they did, he's gotta have it in this car. What was the original design and intention for that machine? And then he goes back and he restores it and he makes it beautiful. But you see, you can't go back and restore something unless you understand what the original design was. And so part of us being equipped about knowing how to walk forward and understand our times and know what to do is to understand the way God's created this world, how human beings flourish most. And when we start to walk in that way, we start to have confidence again because we have something good to offer to the world. It's good news. It's not bad news. It's good news. And you start to gain confidence when you realize the message I have for the world is really good. It's good for them. It's good for their life. It's good for their relationships. It's good for their marriage. You see, I think of this term reconciliation and I think of stories in, in, in scripture. One that I love is the story in John 9. You know, and we have the story of, of the blind man who's sitting there on the side of the road, right? And he's blind and he's been blind since birth. Remember the story? And as he's sitting there blind from birth, so the whole community knows who this man is. They all know him because he's just been there, constantly begging, constantly blind, let me read you what happens in this story. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, isn't that like us, right? We want to kind of get to the logic of this whole thing. We want to ask that question, the theological question. Why is he blind, God? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Like, we've got to figure it all out. We've got to know how you work. Because if we can figure out how you work, we can start to pin this thing down and figure it out. And what does Jesus say? He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, something that was broken in the world was broken so that the work of God could be displayed in him. After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes and said, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now sometimes we just skip through this verse, right? And we're like, wow, what happened there? Jesus put some mud on his, okay. I mean, let's break this down. Here's what happened. Jesus goes down to the dirt. He takes the original dust from which he created man and he rubs it around in his hand and uses his saliva. He takes that mud and creates new life. And he puts it on the eyes of the blind man. And can you imagine the blind man having somebody shove mud into his eyes? 
And as the mud shoved into his eyes, he has to make a critical decision. Is the man who's doing this crazy and I'm being made fun of and there's a bunch of people standing around like it's always been and they're making fun of me? Am I gonna have fear of what people might think of me? Or am I gonna act in faith? And so when Jesus says go, wash in the pool of Siloam, he has a big decision to make. It sounds odd. Why would I go wash in this pool? What? He goes to the pool. He washes, and now he can see. And if you follow that story, I wish we had time to just keep digging into it. I want you to dig into it because it's an amazing story of how this man comes back, and he can see, and everybody around him wants to try to make sense of how God works and how he's doing it. And so they say, so what happened? And, they, and the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are asking him to describe what happened, and they don't believe him when he tells his story. He says, no, he put mud in my eye, I washed, and now I can see, and they don't believe him. And then they start to question the man's parents. And they say to the parents, what happened? Uh, and, and the parents distance themselves from the son and say, we're, we're not sure. And finally, the blind man's so frustrated that he says, I don't know what happened, but I was blind and now I can see. And you see, the power of this story is for us to start to understand the power of the testimony that God wants to start telling through our lives as he starts to rebuild this new church. You see, your life is part of the story he's trying to tell. He's trying to make you new. He's trying to recreate us. And what he's doing is he's taking our most broken parts. In this man, it was his blindness. In you, it could be an addiction. In you, it could be a really horrific part of your story. But what he's saying is, I want to take that old thing that you thought was done with, that you thought you were just going to have to live with for the rest of your life, and I want to take that thing and make it new. And then I want to use your testimony to start to build up the church. And so this man starts giving his testimony in the church of those days, right? The religious people, they didn't know what to do with it. They had to try to make sense of it because it didn't fit into their human terms. But what do we see in Revelation 12, 11? When we read Revelation, we see that how do we triumph over Satan? How is it that the enemy's defeated? They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the word of our testimony is Satan defeated. And sometimes we're too embarrassed about our stories. We don't want to share our testimonies. We're not sure how to say it right. And yet we hold the secret key to how Satan and the enemy is defeated. And it's by us sharing our testimony, talking about our weakness and starting to show how God has used it to renew us. And so every single one of you in this room is being remade, you're being recreated, you're being reconciled, and you're called to be a reconciler, and what God's trying to do is create and renew in all of us an amazing new story, a story of hope and life and good news that's not something you created, but something God's done through you, and when you give him the glory and you start to share that story, you're gonna have more confidence because you're gonna realize, wait, I've been walking around like a human, I've just been walking around like I have all the power to change the world or that if I can't change anything, it's my fault. I forgot as a believer that the Holy Spirit is with me and that he desires to break out in this place and start to transform people and change lives and bring things back together that have been ripped apart for decades because he's a God of reconciliation and renewal. You see, sometimes we're not sure how to step forward into these moments, partly because we're nervous, we're fearful, we're scared, partly because we really wanna have the whole plan figured out, right? We kinda wanna have that clarity. 
We want to know like where this story is going before we take that next big step because it's pretty risky. Your reputation's on the line. And people might not like or relate to what you have to say. And it's a huge risk as a leader in a church to step out and start to lead with faith and lead with boldness and start to communicate what God's communicating to the church and what he's speaking to you for your congregation in your context. But you see, many times, like is the story with this blind man, the clarity doesn't come till after obedience. You see, the blind man had to obey the command of Jesus before he would know where this story was going. And all he was told was to go to this pool and wash off some mud and had no clarity about where the story was going, but he obeyed and then the clarity came. And in our lives, we have to obey. We need to stop trying to figure out God, stop trying to figure out what he's doing with our story and just keep stepping forward into that next part with courage and confidence. See, there's a few questions that I think are helpful for us as we conclude tonight. That as we think about what it might mean to be the church in this new moment, to be a counterculture, you see, if we really believe the world's kind of falling apart at the seams, what it, what it means is, is that a counterculture starts to put things back together. This isn't a negative thing. It's a beautiful thing. That the people of God actually have something to offer to our world. That we're taking seriously what it means to be the church in this new moment. That we're stepping way back. We're getting that 50,000, 100,000 foot view, looking at what God's done throughout the church. And we realize in 2014, maybe he's up to something new. And maybe for a while it's going to feel pretty tough. It's going to feel like we're getting persecuted. It's going to feel like we're losing control. We're losing our power. Guess what? We are. And what we're waking to is his power. And we're waking to a new reformed church that's coming alive again, but it's not one that we're building, it's one that he's building. And he's starting to put those pieces together. And people are seeing it, not just in America, but around the world. Connections are happening. I can just tell you from where I sit, it's happening. Have faith. This is my testimony. God's putting the church back together in a beautiful way. And he wants us to have the confidence to walk forward into that. But part of the challenge for us is how do we be a counterculture in a faithful way? What is it that we do in the midst of this brokenness? Do we just confront everything? Do we tell the world what's wrong with it? How do we be faithful? And you see, if we're not on the same page about how we be faithful, then one person can be, be the biggest critic and condemner and judgment passer that we've ever seen and while somebody else is just the most graceful, loving person and never shares the truth. And so what does it mean to be a counterculture? I've got four questions I want you to consider in your congregation and in your community about what it might mean to be a counterculture in this moment. The first question, what is wrong? You see, we start with this question, it's sometimes the easiest one to answer, but what is wrong in our culture? What is wrong in our church? What is wrong in our community? And you know, the, the, the role of the Christian in this, in this moment is to stop it and confront it. And that doesn't mean we have to be antagonistic, but what it means is we have to be clear about what we believe and we have to stop evil from going forward. And I think we should be the most creative people in how we do that. Now think of a group I just um, heard about in the last couple of weeks. It's amazing. They're taking on the abortion issue, something I think we'd all agree is completely wrong and needs stopped and confronted. Well, there's a lot of ways to do that. We've watched 40 years of how people do that very differently. Well, this group came in and they created this thing called Third Box. 
And this organization called Third Box, what they do is they say, look, every time somebody goes to Planned Parenthood, the, the woman's kind of predestined and already knows that she's likely going to abort her baby. And usually everybody who shows up at a, at a, at a wonderful Christian ministry um, environment where, where they've been asked to come to have questions about their pregnancy and so on and so forth, they usually are kind of leaning towards maybe adoption. They're more open to it. But what if we created this third place where we pulled way back from that discussion and we said, we just want to serve women who have questions and we're not going to be Planned Parenthood and we're not going to be this ministry environment. We're just going to, we want to be the first place. We want to be the first responders. We want to be a place called the third box, this third place where women can come and we're going to love you. And if you decide that that's what you want to do, that you want to terminate after we've been able to minister to you and talk to you, then you know where you can go to do that. If you decide you want to adopt, then we're going to send you to a wonderful place where you can be cared for and loved. And they're not trying to do all of that. All they're trying to do is meet women right in that moment and answer their questions before they've made a decision and determined what it is that they might want to do. Now, for some of you, that might be controversial. But what they're doing is getting very creative at trying to stop and confront something that's horrific. And we need as many people as possible jumping into this space and being as creative as possible to help women who find themselves in these situations feel loved, know that they have options, and to do that in the, in the most excellent way possible. The second question we have to ask is this, what is confused? You see, I think this what is confused question is, is a big one in our culture today because a lot is confused. And what our role is as the church is to come in and to give clarity and to compel people forward. You know, the topic we talked about this afternoon, sexuality, completely confused in our culture. We've started to associate sex with intimacy. We've started to think the definition of love equals sex. We've started to think that our identities are actually found in who we're attracted to. We've started to elevate a sense of freedom without constraint and think it's okay. You see, it's very confused in our culture, so how do we walk forward and bring clarity? in such difficult times. Well, we spent the afternoon with many of you talking about that. We have to be the church that has clarity on what we believe and how we love people in the midst of that. I think about the story of my wife, Rebecca. We, we moved to New York a little over four years ago and we get there and within the first year, she starts to have panic attacks and anxiety and depression. And it was something she'd never experienced before. Here she was as a 35-year-old woman for the first time, three kids in Manhattan, having to get on subways every day, having to be in really tight spaces because that's kind of what New York is, and all of a sudden experiencing panic and challenges with mental health. And she's reminded that her father has struggled with mental health and that her worst, worst fear is that one day she would have mental health problems. And all of a sudden in the middle of New York, we just had moved our family there. She's now experiencing it. God meets her in the midst of that in a miraculous way. And as she would tell you the story much better than I can, he heals her. He touches her. And as he heals her, he starts to give her a vision for how many women are struggling with this. And that part of her mission in the world is to help women have freedom. To help women understand that part of why we suffer anxiety, part of 
part of what we're confused about is that we, we think it's just because of circumstances and environment, but really maybe there's something deeper connected to where our anxiety comes from. And she starts to draw this connection that many others have started to draw over the last century between us not understanding our purpose and our meaning and that increasing our anxiety. There's a subject called logotherapy. You could read much more about it. There's great writing out there on this, but it starts to draw a connection that doesn't say the only solution here is to medicate what you're feeling. Certainly for some, that's the reality and that's what's needed. But for many, they're just medicating to get past pain and to not work through something that's dying to be worked through because that's where they're going to experience ultimate freedom. And so in a situation like mental health that we're talking about in every magazine today, every, every conference seems to be starting to deal with this. The church seems to be behind in the discussion. And yet we should be the ones bringing clarity to this, helping people understand where they can find meaning and purpose outside of themselves. And so clarity something compelling, giving people a vision to start walking towards. The third question we have to ask is, what is good? Now, I'm afraid for too long, Christians have not been so great at this one, at least in recent history. We're not known for like really pointing out what's good in the world besides sort of other Christian things. And yet we should be the best at pointing out what's good in the world, even when it comes from people that don't claim to be Christians. Would you agree there's a lot of good that happens in the world? And a lot of good comes from people who would never claim to be a Christian. You see, as believers, we should be the ones pointing that out and affirming goodness as it goes forward, cultivating it wherever it shows up, celebrating it, celebrating great music, great art, great film, great community projects, great businesses and organizations within our communities, great people who have done amazing work for our cities that help them flourish. We should celebrate them, platform them, thank them. We should be cultivating within the body of Christ an ability to really sense and see good truth and beauty going forward in our world without the label Christian on it. You see, for too long we thought, we'll just make it easy for ourselves and sort of have this little subculture where we create Christian things, music, film, books, on and on and on. And I'll just kind of live in that world and I'll just assume all that's good and yet not train my mind to start to see goodness going forward in the world. And as a church, as I know Lisa talked about this morning, who's become known for what we're against, it's no wonder we've become known for what we're against. We don't even know how to see the good in the world if it's not part of our church or part of the Christian community. And so let's challenge ourselves. Let's get better at that. Let's build relationships by affirming goodness where it goes forward because like we said earlier, every human being is made in the image of God. That goodness is trying to break forth. But sin has distorted it. But maybe your affirmation, maybe your encouragement, maybe your invitation for somebody to share about the good work that they're doing in their community is one way you'll build and rebuild that relationship. And the final question, what is missing? You see, this is often the hardest one to answer because it actually requires imagination. You see, things are missing in our world and we have to create them and that's some of the hardest work. You can't just copy culture and say, oh, we're gonna just recreate that. No, we're gonna create something new and we're gonna catalyze something new. And so in the church, we should be known for what we're creating. 
We're the only place in the world that brings together creatives and business leaders and entrepreneurs and people who are in media and entertainment and who know how to do great photography and know how to program and technology. We, we are the place that on a weekly basis brings this beautiful group of people together who have different callings but who come together under one common purpose and one vision and that is to help our communities and our church and our people start to come to life and recognize this good news. And so our churches should be hubs of creativity hubs of creating these things that are missing in our world. We should be known for that. People should be beating down our doors to get into the church because they can't find a creative community like it. When we start to do that, we start to create new culture, and guess what? That's how you change culture. You don't change it by critiquing it or condemning it. Andy Crouch gave a great talk at our first Q conference we did eight years ago on that. You don't change culture by critiquing it condemning it, or consuming it. You change it by creating more of it. And creating culture doesn't have to be complicated. It's things like creating books. It's the clothes that you're wearing. It's the watch that you're wearing. You see, culture is, is the air we breathe. It's everything. You know, one of the ways we've been challenged in our own world, just to give you a personal example, the organization that we've created called Q. For eight years, we've been doing like this one event where people come together in, in, in April of every year in a new city and they get exposed to that city, how the gospel's going for. They hear like 35 different talks and it's, it's meant to be really engaging. But one of the things we were convicted about is we're not really creating new culture. There's a lot of people that are doing events. People can watch on YouTube content. What's so special about that? And we challenged ourselves over the last 18 months to think about what does it look like to create new culture in communities? And I'm so fired up because in two weeks, this, this thing that's just been a concept and an idea is coming to life. We created this thing called Q Commons. And in, in this idea of Q Commons, what we decided was, let's give away this thing. And so 60 cities around America, there's five around the world, on one evening will host their own gathering. And we've empowered leaders in each of those cities to host a conversation that advances the common good in their city. And those leaders become the heroes. And they become the ones in their city creating conversation. And so on this two-hour evening, they're gonna hear three different talks that we're curating from New York. And everybody that's a part of this thing, 10,000 people will hear those talks. But then they're gonna choose three talks that come together in their community and invite their mayor in, invite the police commissioner, invite the pe person who won teacher of the year in their community who may not be a Christian at all but who they wanna put on their stage and platform and say, this is good that's going forward in our community. We want to be known as a community that's creating hubs of new culture, that's starting to create new conversations that Americans are dying for, that start to bring new life to how we get along despite our differences, how we promote those things that are good that are going forward. And when we start to create that kind of culture, we start to change things and we change the conversation. You see, those are four simple questions. I'm sure there could be more, but those questions just start to guide us to think about what would it mean to be a counterculture? If, if, if Jesus really is renewing the church today and we really are living in a moment where it's starting to feel like we're losing, I want you to be the most hopeful people in your church, the most hopeful people in the room who are giving confidence and faith to the people who are around you to recognize that God is at work, that something new is afoot, and he's looking for those who will step forward into that moment. And so my prayer for you is that he meets you right where you're at. I know some of you are scared, some of you are fearful. Others of you are just plain burnout. 
You've tried everything. And your last straw was coming here. You said, I'm gonna give this one more shot. I love new life, Brady. I've been to this event before. I'm gonna show up because I just need something. And God has something for you here tonight. He wants to remind you of his works. He wants to renew those in our time and he's calling on us as his church to be faithful and to step into it, not in our own power, but in his power. Let me pray for you. Father, we just thank you for these leaders. We thank you for what you've given them to shepherd, to pastor, the people. God, and I know how it feels to be in that role and and to know that you're still trying to figure your own stuff out. You still have your own questions. You still lack your own confidence, and yet you're called to give confidence. God, let us not go forward and be frauds. Let us not be fakes. Let us not be inauthentic. Let us put those questions before you and ask you to reveal your answers to us. Bring your truth into our life through your word. God, cause us all to go deeper. God, cause us all to come into a new place of harmony with you where we hear from you, where we don't just rely on the books that are out there that people have written, where we don't just rely on the latest worship songs that we're singing, but we actually say, God, speak to us. Speak to your church again. God, you don't need millions and millions of us. With Gideon, you needed 300 people. I think you're looking for faithful people right now. You're asking people to step into this moment because you're doing something new and we can't even imagine what it's going to be and we can't even look forward and predict 30 years from now where this is going to go. But what we do know is in this moment, you're asking us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful. Give us the courage, the confidence to obey you, to walk forward into what you're calling each person in this room to do through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.